listening to The Martial Brain, the podcast that explores the intersection between the martial arts, science, critical thinking, skepticism, and that wacky organ that floats inside our skulls in a pool of cerebral spinal fluid, making life unpredictably inspiring, infuriating, and sometimes just batshit crazy. I'm Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. The Forgotten War. The Philippines, the USA, war, colonialism, and the martial arts. Part 11. As the year 1899 wore on into the year 1900, the U.S. Army worked hard to find and capture Emilio Aguinaldo, the president of the nascent First Philippine Republic and commanding general of its military. As a countermeasure, he frequently moved his headquarters. Sometimes the Americans would arrive to find the area only recently deserted. This cat-and-mouse game was partially meant to try to wear out the Americans and degrade their morale. When you combine really steep, treacherous mountains with the heat, humidity, bugs, and disease of rainforest, you might begin to grasp the conditions under which the Americans were playing this game. The Buffalo Soldiers played a pivotal role in all of this. A unit of 350 of them, from the 24th Infantry, was detailed under the command of Captain Joseph P. Batchelor and sent into the rugged wilds of northern Luzon, with orders to chase down Aguinaldo and his insurrectos. One day, as they were trying to do just that, they were attempting to seize control of the area around a strategic confluence of two rivers. As they neared one of the rivers, they spotted, high atop a cliff on the other side, a large unit of insurrectos. They exchanged fire with them, but soon realized that to get anything significant done, they were going to need to cross the river. But there was no bridge and no ford. This was a mountain river. Its current was swift and its waters were deep. Some of the buffalo soldiers, continuing to receive fire from the cliff, tore down a nearby hut so they could try to make a raft from the wood. Four other enlisted men and one officer attempted to swim across. Unfortunately, one of them, Corporal John H. Johnson, drowned in the attempt. The other four made it across, where they began to gather wood, hoping to make another raft to help speed up the crossing for some of their comrades. Somehow, while sustaining fire from the top of the cliff, they managed to do it. They floated their makeshift raft back across the river, where they assisted in finishing the construction of the first one. Once they had two rafts finished, they realized they didn't have the materials to make any more. So, nine men on two makeshift rafts, made up of wood and bamboo scraps, tied together with vines, straps from their canteens, and torn strips of canvas from tents, got themselves and their weapons across the river. Now, rather than waiting for the tedious process of rafting more of their fellows across, they elected to charge by themselves. From that side of the river, it was a simple uphill path to the enemy. The cliff did not face these new attackers. The jungle foliage made it difficult for the Filipinos to see just how many Americans there were, and how many had made it across so far. Despite what seems like a mismatch to us in hearing this description, the insurrectos were very protective of their armed forces, not wanting to take unnecessary casualties. The uncertainty, the gunfire, 
and the war cries of the Buffalo soldiers were sufficient to convince them to give up their position on top of the cliff. Soon, the nine wet, victorious soldiers were up on the cliff, grinning like idiots and waving back at their buddies. Captain Batchelor wrote to his commander, General Lawton, quote, To see nine men, the officers in their drawers and the privates naked, cross such a stream by such means, and drive off an entrenched force not less than ten times their number in broad daylight, where their number must soon become known, is something not soon to be forgotten. Unquote. Later, a force of a thousand insurrectos under General Daniel Tirona surrendered to Batchelor and his 350 men. His detachment then finished their tour on the east coast of Luzon. They had not captured Aguinaldo, but they had lived in the jungle for months, crisscrossing 300 miles of an area virtually never before entered by non-Filipinos, going back and forth over mountains and rivers, driving off, capturing, and killing the enemy far out of proportion to the size of their force. They were exhausted, half-starved, and almost out of ammunition. And now they rested and waited for resupply. A short while after this, General Henry Ware Lawton, Bachelor's commanding officer, veteran of the Civil War and the Apache Wars, commander of the Battle of El Caney in Cuba, was killed by a Filipino sniper. He was the first American general ever to be killed outside North America. Buffalo soldiers of the 25th Infantry crawled over mountains near an extinct volcano and captured an insurrecto headquarters, freeing five American prisoners and securing a valuable cache of supplies. The renowned American novelist, John Dos Passos, was inspired by these exploits of the 25th Infantry to write a poem in his famous USA trilogy of novels, a poem that went, It was that emancipated race that was charging up the hill, up to where them insurrectos was a fightin' fit to kill. By this time, a significant number of Filipinos, especially some of those ethnically rivaled by the Tagalog speakers, like the Ilocanos and the Maccabebes, were fighting on the American side, often acting as scouts and interpreters. The U.S. Army, schooled in generations of warfare against Native American tribes, had long ago learned the value of enlisting members of rival tribes, taking advantage of traditional ethnic hatreds. Commissioner Taft and General MacArthur, despite their differences in personality and style, evolved a de facto working relationship very much in the mode of good cop, bad cop. Some of the good cop stuff included U.S. soldiers building new schools and running vaccination campaigns. My Filipino martial arts teacher, Guru Dan Inosanto, has told me many times about how the Americans tried to use sports and athletics as a bridge between cultures during this period. In a gesture that anticipated the Peace Corps by more than 60 years, a thousand starry-eyed, idealistic young American civilians went to the Philippines to teach school on subsistence wages to Filipino children. At the same time, local commanders of the U.S. military were growing more and more enraged at casualties sustained when fighting against the insurrectos. Now, I've been telling you a lot of interesting stories pivotal to and on the periphery of the Philippine-American War. Now, as you can probably tell, I tend to make this a story-based podcast, and I make no apologies for that. Humans do a lot better with stories than they do with dry statistics. But I can see after 10 episodes that before I go on into the next story within the story, 
Some of you might like a quick and dirty timeline of everything that's happened in the story so far. Here goes. In the year 1898, two of Spain's colonies were in open rebellion, the Philippines and Cuba. And even people in Puerto Rico and Guam were really unhappy living under Spanish rule. The United States is trying desperately to get into the empire-building game before Great Britain, France, Germany, Russia, and Japan snatch up all the good bits. The talented new Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt, has a shiny brand new Navy and wants ever so badly to use it on someone. The American press gins up a full-throated endorsement of going to war with Spain. And then, in February, the shiny new American battleship, the USS Maine, blows up in Havana Harbor. The American press redlines, demanding war right now. In April of 1898, the United States and Spain simultaneously declare war on each other. The first significant action in that war takes place the next week in the Philippines, the Battle of Manila Bay. The American Navy kicks ass and takes names. The Filipino people, defying a truce with Spain, rise up in rebellion almost immediately. They kick ass and take names. A few weeks later, the deposed leader of the rebellion that the Filipinos had been fighting against Spain before all this, Emilio Aguinaldo, returns from exile in Hong Kong, declares the Philippines to be an independent nation, takes over control of the army of the First Philippine Republic, names himself dictator, and then a month later announces that the dictatorship has become a revolutionary government with him as president. Teddy Roosevelt resigns, recruits a regiment of cavalry from a bunch of frat boys and cowboys, and accompanies them to Cuba, where the U.S. Army kicks ass and takes names, especially the badass African-American buffalo soldiers. Teddy Roosevelt lies, saying, Those colored troopers aren't the heroes. I'm the hero. At the end of June, while their comrades are going hard at the Spanish in Cuba, American troops begin to arrive in the Philippines, before long adding up to about 12,000. But these guys trained and then sailed across the Pacific to fight the Spanish, only to find that the Filipinos had already mostly kicked the collective asses of their colonial overlords, and have what's left of the Spanish Army of the Philippines surrounded in Manila. The American troops were all dressed up with no place to go, after a few months and a few Yanks being killed in small engagements, the Americans, ignoring the Filipinos and the Philippine Declaration of Independence, arrange the sham Battle of Manila with the besieged Spanish. I suppose that went something like this. Senor Comandante, I think you can see that the American army is here in force and is taking over the siege. See, and a fine army you have there, too. It would be an honor to surrender to other white men not these Filipino N-words. Yes, the Spanish commander actually used the N-word to refer to the Filipinos. You can't make this shit up. He continues, If you would be so kind as to lob an artillery shell or two into downtown Manila so that we may truly say that we surrendered under fire, I would be most obligated. Sounds like a deal. You may await our shell fire. And apparently, neither the Spanish nor the American commander knew that men way above their pay grades had already agreed to a ceasefire between Spain and the U.S. four days before. So the sham Battle of Manila takes place in peacetime. The next day, the American general, Wesley Merritt, declared himself the military governor of the Philippines. The Filipinos didn't like that. 
Ten days later, the first shots are fired, and before long, there's a real Battle of Manila. That's in early February, 1899. In the first and largest battle of the war, the Americans kick ass and take names. The Filipinos pull their lines back from Manila to the north, taking refuge in the jungle. The Americans keep up the pressure on the Filipinos for the next four months, defeating them in small engagements all over Luzon. Then, in the second biggest battle of the war, the Battle of Zapote Bridge, the Americans kick ass and take names, yet once again, against a much larger force of Filipinos, killing a lot of them and running off the rest. In November, Aguinaldo, realizing which way the wind is blowing, declares that from now on the war will be waged guerrilla style. In December 1899, 60 Filipinos under charismatic, dashing young general Gregorio del Pilar used the Tirad Mountain Pass to their tactical advantage to hold off 500 American soldiers for five hours, before they were nearly all killed. It came to be known as the Filipino Thermopylae. The American military wants a new coach in charge of the team, so they bring in General Arthur MacArthur. Now that the Filipinos have reverted to guerrilla tactics, they win a few small but significant victories. William McKinley's vice president dies suddenly. He takes advantage of the political opportunity to select rising star Teddy Roosevelt to be his running mate for the 1900 presidential election, which he wins, dashing some of the last hopes of Aguinaldo that liberal Americans can wield enough political power to get the Philippines its independence. The war has gone to a darker place. The incidence of atrocities on both sides has increased dramatically. Okay. That's a quick and dirty timeline that brings us back up to the present in the story. And I'll get back to that story next time. Anyway, that's what I think. But I could be wrong. Let me know what you think. And check out old episodes of the Martial Brain podcast at my website, rpmartialarts.com. I'm Jeff Westfall for the Martial Brain. The Martial Brain is produced by Raging Squirrel Productions in association with the Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy. If you like the podcast and would like to help it grow, go to iTunes or Stitcher and give it an honest rating and review. Contact me with questions about the Martial Brain or about the Rising Phoenix Academy at my website, rpmartialarts.com.